Please do keep your uh, Bibles open at that page. That would be great. And shall we pray um, as we start? Uh, Lord God, we do thank you that you are God who has uh, revealed yourself through history. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd reveal yourself through your word uh, by your spirit this morning. That we may see Jesus more clearly and love him more fully. In his name we pray. Amen. There have been many great uh, speeches, inspiring speeches in human uh, history. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg uh, address with that famous line, all men are created equal. Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, denouncing prejudice uh, and racism. uh, racism. Winston Churchill, uh, his uh, fight them on the beaches speech, very inspirational. Many, many others, great speeches uh, in history, but few speeches, it is right to say, have been as significant, challenging, or inspirational as the speech we're looking at this morning. It's long, but it is all of those things. And it is no exaggeration to say uh, that Stephen's speech changed the world. That is no exaggeration. This is the pivot in the book of Acts to the Church of Christ going global, or going viral, uh, we might say today. It is a speech that provides the basic uh, theology for the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ from the confines of the Jews and Jerusalem out into the wider world. It's there at the beginning of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, out it goes to the wider world, never to return. What we're looking at this morning, you know, is a great courtroom drama. This is not Stephen the visiting preacher at Holy Trinity Jerusalem. This is Stephen the defendant on trial for his life in a religious court. That same court that recently denounced Jesus, executed Jesus as a false prophet and a blasphemer. And as you should with every courtroom drama, we're going to look at it in three parts. We're going to have a brief recap of the charges. We're going to spend most of our time looking at the defence. And then we're going to look at the verdict. So first, uh, the charges. A couple of weeks ago, we, we were back in uh, chapter 6, and we saw, we saw that Stephen was a man full of faith. He'd been chosen to help sort out some problems in the early church, and he's presented to us in a really wonderfully compelling way. Just turn back to chapter 6, uh, on page 1098. He's a man full of faith and the Spirit, verse 5, chapter 6. Full of grace and power, verse 8. Full of wisdom and the Spirit, verse 10. This is a Christ-like man. And he's a man of persuasive speech, so much so that when he's there speaking to the Jews in the synagogue and arguing with them, we're told, uh, verse 10, that they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit by which he spoke. So what do they do? Exactly what they did with Jesus. You've got a smear campaign They produced false witnesses who slandered him, they twisted his preaching, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the high priest of the Sanhedrin, to answer charges of blasphemy. What are those charges? They're there in verse 13 of chapter 6. They're twofold. Stephen is accused of speaking against the holy place, the temple, and against the law. Against the temple and against the law. You know, these are serious charges. The temple was a holy place where God dwelt, and the law was holy scripture, 
So Stephen is accused of speaking against God's house and against God's word. It's about as serious as it gets. And so we arrive, don't we, at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? If you were a lawyer advising Stephen on his defence, I think the advice would probably be this. Keep the evidence tight. Don't say more than you need to. Focus on the key issues. And whatever you do, always show respect to the judge. What does Stephen do? He launches into a lengthy history lesson and ends up bluntly counter-accusing those who are judging him. What on earth is he doing? How is this going to help his defence? Well, you only have to scratch the surface to see this is a brilliantly precise and focused defence. Because in his kind of panoramic, widescreen retelling of Israelite history, he is saying, no, no, you are the ones who are wrong. You are the ones who are rejecting God's temple, not me. And you are the ones who are rejecting God's law, not me. So what Stephen does is he goes to the familiar scriptures and shows them how they point to Christ and are fulfilled in Christ. How all the law and the prophets said are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Stephen probably knows that this speech will result in his death. It's not a speech designed to charm or, or secure an acquittal. Instead, it is a fearless counterattack in defence of Christianity. And he doesn't know what the outcome will be, but it may be death. It's almost like he stands in the dock and he plays his life like a playing card. And he puts his trust in the hands of Almighty God, in whom he has supreme confidence. He plays his life like a card. And the card is a game-changing ace. So let's look at Stephen's defence in a bit of detail. You know, the the events that Stephen describes would have been really familiar to his Jewish audience. This is their national history, the sort of 1066, Magna Carta, Battle of Trafalgar, Act of Union, all rolled into one. It's kind of year one rabbi school stuff. But you notice the two themes, there's two themes that kind of run through this defence. Theme number one is this, it's God's presence. God's presence. So for the Jews, the the temple in Jerusalem, it is central. It is a place where God was to be found. So to depart from the temple, that is to depart from God. Stephen says, no, you need to get your history textbooks out and look a bit more closely. So he starts with Abraham, the father of the nation, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 7. Just look at verse 2. Stephen reminds them how God appeared to Abraham in where? Mesopotamia. A pagan nation with no temple. But God was there, he spoke to Abraham and he caught him. Then he turns to Joseph, doesn't he? Verses 9 to 16. He reminds them that Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers and ends up where? Egypt, a foreign pagan nation. Six times in seven verses, Egypt appears. He wants us to get the point. But guess what? God is there. 
God is at work in this foreign and pagan nation, rescuing Joseph from all his troubles. Stephen then moves on to Moses in the longest chunk of the speech, 17 to 43. This is going to be okay, isn't it? Moses, the archetypal Israelite. He's from where? Egypt. That pagan nation. Who brings him up? Pharaoh's daughter, verse 21. Where does he go to school? Verse 22, Egypt. How long was he there? 40 years. He then goes to Midian, verse 29. That's not the promised land, definitely not. He has two sons, stays another 40 years, and while there, God appears to him and speaks. In a temple, by any chance? No. In the wilderness, in a burning bush, verse 30. 300 miles from Jerusalem, and yet the mountain Moses is standing on is holy ground. He's got to take his sandals off. So then finally, Stephen moves on to the monarchy, that kind of great heyday under David and Solomon, verses 44 to 55. Yes, there is a tabernacle where the symbolic presence of God was focused, but it travelled around, it moved until it settled in Jerusalem. Yes, under Solomon, a great temple was built, marking the symbolic presence of God. But it was never meant to be understood as God's home. Do you see that in verse 48? However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord. So do you see, Stephen has done this kind of panoramic overview of the history of the Israelites And about 90% of the time, if you totted it up, is on events outside Israel. In places where there was no temple. Do you see what Stephen is doing? He's saying to the Jewish leaders, your God is too small. God can't be put in a box. He can't be locked in a building. That was never true in the past and it is certainly not true now. Because the Jewish leaders, they wanted to localise God, to limit him to ritual and ceremony, to make God in their own image, to bring God down to their own comfortable size. Yet what does Stephen show? God is so much more. A living God, a God on the move. A God calling his people out to fresh adventures. A God who speaks, sends, promises, rescues, punishes. A God who accompanies and directs his people. You know, as Christians, we often pray something like this, Lord, please be with us in this situation, or please be with us as we go out from this meeting. You know something, that is actually a redundant prayer. It's a redundant prayer, because God is with us wherever we go, if we're a Christian. That was true of Abraham, Joseph, Moses. It's true of Stephen, as those rocks come down on him. If we're Christian, God promises he is always with us. He never walks out. So we don't need to ask him to come back. Even in those most lonely and difficult of places, God is with us. He never abandons us. 
They see the Jewish leaders, they're utterly enraged, aren't they? But what Stephen says, there is fury, gnashing of teeth. Verse 44, but then Stephen, what does he do? He blows open the mind-blowing truth about the presence of God. Let's look at verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It is as if the curtains of heaven are drawn back. And what does Stephen see? The risen and ascended Jesus, the Son of Man, the one to whom all authority, all glory, all sovereign power would be given, the one who is worshipped by, guess what, people of every, every nation and language. He is there at the right hand of God in the position of power and authority. What is the point here? The real place to meet God is not a place, but a person. It's Jesus. That is what Stephen is showing here. The temple was a model. Jesus, he is the real thing. There's now no place for high priests or sacrifices because Jesus was the perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice of his own life. On the cross, the Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. He died for our sins and rose again. And he is a mediator between us and God. Remember those words of Jesus that John recalls, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, says Jesus. Jesus says, I am the real temple. You want to meet with God? Then come to me. Yeah, this is a pivotal moment in the development of the early church because Stephen got it. He understood what Jesus had accomplished through his death and resurrection. He knows the temple it is finished with. Instead of asking people to come to a building, it is now the time to go out and tell the world about Jesus. God is a God for all nations and Acts is about the great news of Jesus Christ moving out in ever-increasing circles, out to the ends of the earth. So in chapter 8, the good news of Jesus goes beyond kosher Judaism to Samaria. By the time we reach chapter 9, Saul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he is converted. Chapter 10, there's the conversion of the first Gentile to Cornelius, and on and on marches the gospel. Philippi, modern-day Turkey, to Rome, and ever since. Yeah, this was hard stuff for the Jewish leaders to understand. It undermined so much of what they were about, their pride, their traditions, their status, their livelihoods. And I think, actually, it is hard for us, too, because we've got this kind of inbuilt tendency to complicate and mystify Jesus Christ, to kind of bolt on other bits, other requirements... Buildings, particular styles of church services, good works, whatever it might be. So we've got to take this, haven't we, deep and deep, again and again. Jesus is all 
we need. Wherever you are, whoever you are, if you want to meet with God, to know God, to know forgiveness and peace, then all you need to do is come to Jesus. The walls are down. Do you know Jesus? So God's presence is not limited, says Stephen. It's you who are wrong about the temple, not me. And then you see the second theme of Stephen's defence more briefly. It's this, God's prophet is never popular. God's prophet is never popular. So remember, the charge against Stephen is he's against the temple and he's against the law. So Stephen says, okay, okay, let's go back through history and let's see who it is that does the resisting. So just two examples from what Stephen says. Look at verse 9 of chapter 7. Verse 9, it was the patriarchs who resisted God's chosen deliverer, Joseph. Why? Well, we might remember because they were jealous. How did it go? Badly. The patriarchs end up on their knees begging for salvation from the brother they hated and rejected. And what about Moses? He is not exactly welcomed, is he, with open arms? Look at verse 24. He intervened to help an Israelite who was being ill-treated. Moses thought that his own people would realise they were using him to rescue them. Verse 25, but no. What does the rescued man say? Verse 27, who made you ruler and judge over us? Rejection. Then in verses 38 and 39, if you have a look at those briefly... 38, 39, Stephen explains how Moses went up the mountain, heard the voice of the living God, received the law, came back down to what? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And then by verse 41, they are tragically worshipping a calf. Stephen is saying people have always rejected God. They've always kicked back at God's grace. And then, do you see, which with breathtaking, spirit-inspired boldness, he turns on his accusers and in a moment of great drama just gives it to them straight. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen is saying in summary this, I understand, and it's you that don't. Yes, Jesus has changed the place of the temple and the law. But this is the logical, the divine development and climax of the story of God's salvation plan through history. The story that began with Abraham and Moses has now been fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. So those who follow Jesus, they are the true responders to God's plan. And this court which has betrayed and murdered Jesus, is not. It's you lot who are the blasphemers 
And you should be in the dock, not me. I think the rejection of God's word is the pattern of Israelite history. And it's a pattern of human nature. Of every age, God's word and God's messenger are often hated and rejected. That is the story of Acts. And it is the story of the church to this very day, as Trevor reminded us uh, in, the, in our prayers. This is something we've got to understand if we're ever going to make sense of the way our Christian lives are. The human nature is not neutral towards God. By nature, we are antagonistic towards Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, think about your own life before you came to Christ. The times you rebelled against your Christian parents, decided to sleep with your, Christ, with your boyfriend or girlfriend. The times you put your ambitions for money and status above honouring God. The times you stuck your Bible on a shelf somewhere. The times you buried your conscience. We're not born with mutual hearts. And so the friends and family we're trying to win for Jesus Christ are not neutral. If you leave them alone, maybe they will be. But if you talk to them about Jesus, they won't be, not unless God has begun a work in them. So surely the message has to be, we shouldn't be discouraged if we encounter rejection, if the alpha invite is binned, if people just look at us and think we're a bit nuts if we talk about Jesus. Don't give up. As we witness for Christ, that will be our experience. We're on track, if you like. It goes with the grain of authentic Christian witness. So we've had the charges, we've had the defence. What about the verdicts, finally and briefly? You can feel, can't you, the kind of white-hot, screaming rage of the Sanhedrin at what Stephen says. That utterly enraged. Look at verse 57. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. This is unauthorised lynch mob justice. Stephen is dragged outside the city and has rocks bounced off him until he dies. It is a brutal human verdict, witnessed probably by a large crowd. But the manner of Stephen's death is just astounding. Just look at verse 49. 59, is it? While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Do you notice the echoes there of the death of Jesus? That kind of sense of forgiveness towards his persecutors, the entrusting of himself to God. He knows, this is a man who knows what God's verdict will be. It's a Christ-like death. There's something deeply moving and yet temporary about the manner of Stephen's death. 
Do you notice back, uh, further back, Stephen sees the Son of Man standing, standing at the right hand of God. You know, all other times in Scripture, Jesus is portrayed as sitting at the right hand of God. That's what we've sung many times this morning, sitting at the right hand of God. Here, Jesus is standing. It's the only time in Scripture that is portrayed. It is almost as if Jesus is on his feet, ready to welcome his servant home. This is not the end. Beautifully, Stephen fell asleep, but he will be woken up on that great day, that great and glorious day when Christ will return to take all those who trust in him to be with him forever. What a beautiful death. A brutal but beautiful death. It's not too much, I think, to deduce that what Stephen said and the way he died laid the groundwork for Saul's conversion. We see in verse 1 of chapter 8, we're told that Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on this day, a great persecution broke out in the church in Jerusalem, against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles are scattered. Yet surely, surely this is the beginning of Saul's turning to Christ. He hints of that himself uh, in Acts chapter 22. In watching Stephen die, Saul sees a man at peace with God, at peace with himself, and at peace with enemies. The seed, it was sown here. I think there's a great comfort here. And that is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is in control of our lives. Because what flowed from Stephen's death is a wonderful example of this. At the time, just think, it must have been such a hopeless and painful situation. This godly man with a face like an angel, brutally cut down. Where is the hope in this? Where is God's plan? Surely evil has triumphed. But in his sovereignty, God powerfully uses the rejection of men to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. He is that awesome. Who would have known, as the Christians are are scattered like refugees, trudging out of Jerusalem, men, women, old people, probably fearful, homeless, in despair, doubtless tears running down their cheeks, that this was the beginning of world mission. This is the embryo of the Christian communities, the thriving communities that spread out across the Mediterranean. And who would have thought that the young man giving approval to Stephen's execution, the man at whose feet Stephen's clothes are laid, would soon be at the vanguard of that mission? and would become the greatest gospel missionary of all. So often we despair in the challenges and rejections of our lives. But we can be comforted by the sovereignty of God. He is in control. Finally, a challenge. The challenge of Stephen is surely this. How much rejection are we willing to take for the Lord Jesus Christ? Put another way, how much are you willing to suffer? 
It is a hard question. It certainly feels a very hard question for me. Stephen had a choice and he made it for Jesus Christ. The cost for most of us is nothing compared to what it was for him. And nothing compared to what it is for many of our brothers and sisters today. Yet so often we're not even prepared to risk our family relationships, our career, and our friendships. We we won't put them on the line for the gospel. We're reluctant to speak for fear of rejection. The plain truth at the heart of Stephen's preaching and his death is surely this. To follow Christ is to follow the pathway of rejection. And we deceive ourselves if we try and dress it up another way. Jesus promised it. Stephen modelled it. We're not to go looking for it or to ask for it. But we need to recognise that if we're faithful to Christ, it will, at some point, come our way. So we need to be ready for it, to pray for strength in the Holy Spirit. For that boldness, that spirit-inspired boldness of Stephen. And we need to be ready to support each other as a church when we're in the midst of it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your salvation plan in history that is fulfilled in him. And we praise you that he is all we need. And Lord, we do ask that you would give us uh, bold uh, mouths and hearts willing to speak uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to contend for him. Lord, we ask that you would use us in the places where you've put us uh, to powerfully speak uh, for Jesus Christ. To know what that means. To know the encouragements and the discouragements. But Lord, we thank you that you are always with us. You never leave us, whatever place that may be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.